Los vecinos la evitaban al verla pasar. Todos escuchaban con disimulo, desconfiando unos de otros. El caos de la duda se apoderaba de la capital alemana. Escuchar era más seguro. Hablar era un riesgo. De casa en casa, de ventana en ventana, las noticias en la radio, aquellas arengas en alabanza de la pureza, se habían convertido en la banda sonora habitual de la ciudad. Alemania para los alemanes. Y yo, yo no soy alemana también, quiso preguntar. Caminando sin rumbo fijo, terminó en la Fasanenstrasse. Al darse cuenta de que estaba muy cerca de la sinagoga, cruzó a la acera de enfrente. En otra esquina, se sorprendió al ver Dalias. As she walked alone, she noticed her neighbors avoiding one another. Everyone seemed to be superstitiously whispering and eavesdropping. The chaos of doubt was gripping the German capital. It was safer to listen, for speaking carried risks. From house to house, window to window, the news on the radio, those harangues in praise of purity had become the city's daily soundtrack. Germany for the Germans. I am not a German too, she wanted to ask. Eventually, she found herself in Fasanestrasse. Realizing she was close to the synagogue, she crossed to the opposite side of the street. On the next corner, she was surprised to see Dalias outside a flower shop. She rejoiced in this shock of color amid the gray, drab city that had become devoid of life. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favorite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to Armando Lucas Correa. Armando is a journalist and the editor of People en Español. He was born and grew up in Cuba, but now lives in New York. He's the author of the international bestseller, The German Girl, now translated into 13 languages. But today we're talking about Armando's new book, The Daughter's Tale. Armando, welcome to Sydney and congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you very much. Yeah. Armando, The Daughter's Tale and your previous book, The German Girl, share a Cuban thread. Did The Daughter's Tale develop from ideas in The German Girl? Yes, I think everything started with the St. Louis, you know, this ocean liner leaving Nazi Germany with over 900 Jewish refugees, all of them with permit of disembark. And they arrived in Cuba May 27, 1939. And the president of Cuba at that moment, Laredo Bru, requested another $500 per passenger. Uh, they left Cuba on June 2nd. They tried to go to United States, and President Roosevelt denied the entrance as well as uh, Prime Minister Mackenzie from Canada. They s went back to Europe and they found refugees in, in France, Belgium, Holland and Great Britain. The war started in September and most of them ended in Auschwitz. I heard the story for the first time when I was 10 years old, living in Cuba. And my grandmother, I remember her during May, saying uh, that For the next 100 years, Cuba is going to pay very dearly because of what they did to the Jewish refugees. And when I went to college, uh, 
I trying to find more information about the St. Louis. I went to the National Archive and a, a librarian there's whispering me, like there used to be like four busks labeled with the St. Louis and all of them disappeared during the 70s. My grandmother was pregnant with my mom when the boat arrived in Havana. I think that that's one of the reasons it's always in her mind. And she's a daughter of a Spanish immigrant. And then when I arrived in the United States in 1991, working for the Herald, I'm a journalist, and I researched and start buying books, documents, postcards, mugs, plates from the St. Louis. I was obsessed with the story. I, I found postcard from Orador sur glane this is a small village in the south of France, that one day, in a beautiful Saturday morning in 1944, the Nazi arrived. They always be in the big city, never in this small village. And they order all the population to go to the square. They put it inside the, the church and they burn down the, sh uh, the church with all of them. They kill over 600, uh, most of them women and children. Doing the research, I have a lot of information I need to 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 figure out is it going to be everything in the German girl. And then talking to my editor, we decided to do like a trilogy. And that day, the Dorestel was <laughs> born. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Is it a trilogy? When do yes, we expect the yes. next, the third installment of yeah. this trilogy? <laughs> I was doing a lot of uh, book signing in, in Sydney and... Everybody's asking, well, what is what <laughs> when we're gonna receive the the next book? But I need another two years to finish. You know, I've been working for all these three books for the last fifteen years of my life, and but I think this is gonna be the end, and it's gonna be called the Night Traveler, and going again to another part of the history that we tend to forget or put on the side, because I always said that it's easy to say that Hitler killed kill over six million of. Jewish, but when you said that part of the tragedy, like the St. Louis, Cuba, United States, and Canada was part of the tragedy, you know, we preferred to forget. <laughs> Everybody bears some of the guilt. Exactly, yeah. And it's the same with the Orador Surglain, because it was the Nazi who ordered the massacre, but with the help of the police, uh, uh, French policemen, you know. Was it a natural transition for you from journalism to historical fiction? I think I, I, I always love to write and I remember, you know, being a teenager and writing short stories, poems, you know, whatever, uh, all the teenagers that love reading because I, I, I was an avid reader, you know. And my major was in theater and dance critic, you know, I, I started working in a theater magazine and then when I, because I'm, at the end I am, I am a Cuban refugee, you know, living in the United States, I had to reinvent myself. And working at the Herald, it was like going back to college, you know, learning journalism in the States and America. It's completely different. I read and write. That's my daily process. And then when I moved to New York, I published my first book. It's called In Search of Emma. It's, it's a nonfiction book uh, that is only in Spanish. It's going to be in English next year about how I create my family with the help of a surrogate mother and an egg donor. And then an editor from Simon Schuster in New York read the book, she, she reads in Spanish, and she said, Armando, you have to write a novel. And he said, you know, Johanna, every writer has a novel in the drawer or under the bed, we said in Spanish. And I presented the idea of the St. Louis and this 
this conflict of, of identity and trying to find who you are and your past and and she loved this story and then we start working because to sign the contract for the book I need to have the, the first uh, sentence in my mind and the first chapter I think exactly for, yeah I, I show a couple of chapters I, I, I remember it was the last one the the one when the fathers go to Manhattan and disappear it was September 11 but I need to have my first sentence for me it's important even uh, when I sign for the next two books I have my first sentence already I have to have it and then I, I requested another three months working on the first sentence at the beginning it was like a couple of paragraphs and then a paragraph and then one sentence it was like more more or less it's like I'm gonna be 12 years old and I decided to kill my parents and then I signed the contract your first two books are set mostly in Europe although also in Canada and, and the US or they develop from the consequences of events in Europe but you're originally from Cuba why European historical fiction even even I'm Cuban, I'm not Jewish. Uh, I, I I think so, and I always obsess with this kind of part of the history. That uh, we read a lot, we always see movies related. But for me, it's always I have in my mind because uh, the Holocaust or the Second World War. For me, happened yesterday. You know, it's, it's something very close. If I talk to my children, they are 13 years old and nine years old. They think that the you know the Holocaust happened like a 3,000 years. It's the same equivalent. And then when I talk to them, even for me, I, I always thinking and always have a question: How this happened in the most civilized continent in the world? It was not in Africa when one. One of the crazy countries in Latin America. Supposedly one of the technologically and culturally advanced exactly. countries. Exactly. No, no, it wasn't the, the most civilized country in Europe. You know. And then, why this this happened? My my daughter, when she read the German girl, that was a question. And then I'm, I am a journalist. I I always thinking maybe why I don't do like a nonfiction with all this interview that I have with the survivors and talking to the historians and have all these pictures and documents. But at the same time, there is a lot of books about the St. Louis and nobody knows about the St. Louis. And when I presented the, my, my idea to the Simon & Schuster editor, most of them, they're Jewish. They don't know about the St. Louis. Think about it. It was 2009 that President Obama invited the survivors to the Congress and he did a kind of apology. And it was last year, I'm talking about 79 years later, that Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada, I held the office of him to bring all these survivors to Canada and he did an apology in the House of Commons. It took like 79 years. I said, why? You know, I, I, I am obsessed with that. That's the reason I decided to do like historical fiction, go to all these fictional characters because you're going to have a better uh, emotional connection. I suppose the best way to teach people about history exactly. is to write yeah. fiction about look it. At, look at what happened now. Uh, Chernobyl yep. happened in the 80s, and we know the problem with the nuclear plant. You have to wait until the series in HBO that it changed the mentality and opened a new dialogue. A fictional series produced in England and have been watched for hundreds of millions of people in 
Yeah, fiction fiction seems to spark people's imaginations, I guess, and they're interested. I I think you have to create an emotional connection. You have to see that, you know, reading is like going to college. You're doing non-fiction, like you're going to college and trying to learn something fast and forgetting the next day. With this character, you are talking about life, real life at the end. Yeah, I think so. Identity and dislocation are two strong themes in The Daughter's Tale and in The German Girl. Sometimes the characters have to choose between identities or change their identity and where they live in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And your characters seem to be constantly exploring the things that define identity, things like place, profession, family lineage, and even loyalty. Is there something personal in these themes for you? I think so. Uh, my great-grandparents from both sides, my mother's side and my father's side, they came from Spain, and they have to create a new persona, you know, in even a new name. When <laughs> The last name of my grandmother it was completely different because, you know, when you, go, you arrive in a new country, they put the name whatever they want to put, or maybe shorter. And I'm, I'm a Cuban refugee. I have to reinvent myself, learn a new language, a new profession, create a family, and sometimes I don't know who I am. You know, that's happened when you are a refugee. And most of the Jewish refugees who arrive in Cuba, they have to Hispanicize their last name. That's typical. If you're Rosenthal, you became a Rosen. If you are Hannah, became Anna. You create a new persona. Uh, I remember I wrote a small, like a short story when I was a teenager about how many souls you have in one body. And then when you're growing up, you, you can go for the bad way or the you know the wrong way yes. or the good way and then you're creating with all these people that you have inside you are creating one and and I think that's a, the narrative for both books all your characters seem to undergo these kinds of changes that the character yeah. of Lena becomes Elise yeah. uh, and even Amanda one of the first characters that yeah. appears in the book she is German but She's Jewish. She looks yeah. German, but she's Jewish, yeah. and she gets treated as a German sometimes. Yeah. And at the beginning, she thinks she's she's more German than Jewish. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So it's very confusing for her. Yeah. And and towards the end, there's also this identity by association. The the French people in the village that you speak of, mm-hmm. when they associated with the Germans, became the Bosch, the mm-hmm. the, the enemies of the French exactly. people. Yeah. So these themes seem to resonate right through the book, and I yeah. see now that it's you it's have, part of you. Exactly. You you are creating all this people that you have inside and you create the best way that you can to survive and at the same time forgetting all the time you have to forget to survive and that's always something that for me was strong when I left my country my family even someone asked me uh, today do you miss uh, your family when you are traveling you know too many days my children so I never think about it you know why because I don't want to be depressed you know I'm living right now I'm talking to you, and this is the most important part right now. If I'm thinking, oh my God, I want to see my children, I want to have to be with them, uh, I go to bed, I'm never going to wake up. Their living room was a can of garden bordered by a wall of literature. Brocade curtains with floral patterns, tapestries showing bucolic scenes, carpets as thick as newly mown grass, and every spare surface occupied by books. Over dinner, Amanda made polite conversation so that Julius wouldn't return to the most pressing topic. She told him she had sold an encyclopedia, 
that someone had ordered a collection of Greek classics, that Frolin Hilde Kramer, her favorite customer, had not been by the bookstore for a week now, whereas previously she would come after teaching her classes and spend hours browsing the shelves without ever buying anything. First thing tomorrow, clear up the shop window, Julius demanded. When he saw how his stern voice made Amanda recoil, he went over and pulled her to him for an instant. He leaned his head against her chest and breathed in the perfume of his wife's freshly washed hair. Both the daughter's tale and the German girl were written in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Does this process of translation present any anxiety for you? And do, <laughs> do you worry that yeah. anything might be lost in the translation? Yeah. Well, um, I write it in Spanish. This is my language. And I remember when I finished The German Girl, my editor said, we need to find the perfect translation for you. Because if you read my book, you, you, you see that I have a voice, sometimes lyrical, sometimes a lot of metaphor, and creating all this atmosphere, you know, around the characters. And then she sent me three tests, only labeled with number one, two, and three. And I said to her, Number three is the only one who can translate my my book. And she said, Armando, he's the most expensive one. He lives in London and he has to choose you. He has to read the book. And he if he likes the book, then he's going to translate your book. And he's a translator. He, his name is Nick Kester, And he's a very famous translator uh, from Spanish to English. And he's a translator for Isabel Allende, you know, the Chilean writer, Pérez Reverte, all these big names in Hispanic. Thanks God, he decided to translate The German Girl and all my books, and he translated to The Daughter's Tale. And then I became his nightmare, because, you know, we have six-hour difference, and we were talking at nine, and sometimes it was my night, sometimes it was his night. So he inherited the anxiety. <laughs> I think so. And the, I remember one of the boleros, you not know, the song for Cuban song from the German girl, they have like a crazy title. It's Armando that doesn't have any sense in English, in Hispanic neither. Yeah, I remember talking to him. And sometimes he's a good editor too. Sometimes he proposed some changes that I do in English and working with the translation, I shame in Spanish and go back again to him. It's a long process, but I enjoy it. Yeah. I guess you have to, otherwise you'll yeah. go mad. Yeah. <laughs> Your characters are also very conscious of the passing of time. Amanda waits for her husband to return. She watches over her sleeping daughters and lights candles as a kind of ritual in the evening. Mm-hmm. But it's especially obvious in the counting of breaths and heartbeats. Is this sense of vigil, of counting of time, Mm -hmm. is that a deliberate course of action for you or does it just occur naturally as the narrative unfolds? Uh, At the beginning for the book, the title is going to be The Silence Between Us, talking about the silence between hearts. And during my research, uh, I studied the electrocardiogram and I, I almost became a cardiologist, believe me. I read a lot of books. Even if you show me your electrocardiogram, I can read it and can tell you. Should I add it to your biography <laughs> yeah, at the beginning? Yeah, almost. And and I love the idea of this guy that he's like a ghost because he appears only at the beginning and he's going to be present for the whole book. That when you are under stress or you are afraid, you have to count your heartbeats. And between when the space between heartbeat one and two is longer, you feel better. And then uh, I, I love one of the reviewers from the New York Times. 
he did a great review for the Doris Dell. He mentioned that you read between heartbeats. You no, know, the whole book you are reading between heartbeats. Yeah. A section of the story is told through the voices of children. Where do you find the inspiration for those voices? Yeah, when I started writing uh, for the German Girl, mainly, I I I was not a father. I, you know, I was a the this Cuban refugee, young, living in Miami, working for the Herald, writing obits for the paper. And everything changed when I had my first daughter in 2005. And I think even the style of the book changed completely. It was a different, it was more emotional. Uh, I, after I have my children, I cry for everything. You tell me a story right now, I can start crying during the podcast. Yeah. I read and I write crying. It's, I am very emotional, I have to have my children. And Emma, uh, Emma is 13 years old, she's gonna be 14 November, and she gave voice to the daughter's tell. I remember at the beginning it was, I'm gonna be nine years old and decided to kill my parents. And then the next year she's gonna be 10 years old because she, Hannah was growing up with Emma at the same time. And most of all the phrases that uh, Hannah said in the book, they came from my daughter. The yeah. children in the book yeah. go through a process of yeah. growing up too, don't yeah. they? And for me, writing is a very, I read and write, and it's a very, it's around my family all the time. And I can remember some passages with my son, like right now he's nine and a half, like we were three years old in Miami going to the beach. I have all this memory with my children and some passage and chapter of the books. And somehow they find their way into these yeah. books. And the smell, I, I, I'm very sensitive with the smell. And that's the reason you, you smell everything in, in the book sometimes too much, like the editor <laughs> said. But in Cuba, it's very strong with the heat and the smell and the violets and the flower. And then, for me, it's, it's part of my life. I remember Cuba with all the smell. And that's another thread that runs through the book, the, the botanical thread, if you like, the flowers yeah, I, the that, flower that appear the on, on the yeah. stationery. Yeah. And, you know, I, I bought a couple of uh, books from the 19th century with all this botanical flower. I went to Paris, to Limoges, and I love I have in my office. I think, but why do you have to spend money in this. I finished a book, I'm working a new, a new one, but I have to have it. I, I need to feel it, I need to see the, the paper when, uh, you know, the Amanda is gonna write all this letter to her daughter, yeah. How do you divide your time between journalism and writing fiction? Uh, my life is really hectic, I think, between the children, my full-time job as an editor, and writing. That's the reason I think I'm lucky because uh, every time that someone asks me when why why is the way to find a solution when you are blocked and you can write that's a luxury for me. If I have a computer on time, I'm writing. My mind never stops. The only thing that I need is time, and I love to be under pressure. I think being a journalist that you know is important for a journalist. The deadline I never miss a deadline and accuracy. And then I have that rush with me when I'm writing because I know I have to finish 500 words today. If not, I have to write 5,000 words during the weekend. Yeah, I have to have a more flexible week. I need to write my 500s every day. You know? It's a time management thing. Yeah. And then, then because I am half, I am lazy right now. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying Australia, talking to you and coming back uh, with the kids. But I need to go back. I think 
starting in July, I need to go back and write in my 500 words. If not, then I travel is going to be in three years. <laughs> and where to next for your writing, Amanda? Europe, America, Cuba, Australia? <laughs> well, uh, there is a, one of the editors here in Simon Schuster. Uh, said, Armando, you have to write about Cuba, like uh, uh, family saga, and it's uh, beginning in the 20th century until today. We need to read more about Cuba. And, you know, I always said that I am a late writer, and I started really late publishing at least. Then I have a lot of chapter that I can play with them. That's the reason. Uh, if I don't have all the things that I have written already, I think my book is gonna take like a ten years to finish because I always play with character, chapter, emotions because I have thousands of paper, uh, pages written already. Are we talking about a hundred years of solitude from <laughs> <Almost>. Cuba? <laughs> yeah, I love to do that. I think Cuba needed a book like you can count, you know, beginning after the war with the Spain, the first day of the Republic. You know, and then the revolution and what happened today, but I don't know the end. That's a problem when you're writing for a country that you don't know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow, you know. Armando, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining me today on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you very much. I'll see you in two years with the Night Traveller. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I've been talking to Armando Lucas Correa about his new book, The Daughter's Tale. It's published by Simon & Schuster and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name is Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.